My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion, The Visitor, The Encounter, The Message, The Predator, The Capture, The Stranger, The and The Secret, The Android, The Forgotten, The Reaction, The Chain, The Unknown, The Escape, The warning, The Decision, The Spell, The Departure, The Sound, Discovery, The Proposal, Threat, The Mutation, The Violation, The Deception, The Suspicious, The Unexpected, Sacrifice, The Diversion, and The Beginning. Chronicles. So should we keep talking about the Harkager Chronicles? Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Sounds good. Okay, so we already did an episode about the Harkager Chronicles. You might have noticed, if you've been following along, it was episode 22.5, Like Us But Scorpions. And as you know, if you've listened to that episode, we got about two hours into our recording session, and then our recording software started having all these glitches. It's so, my fault. I'm sorry. Yeah, Ted is the recording software, and he messed up. He just didn't want to capture all our words. Nothing so, could be further from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Ted did it so that we would have an excuse to make another episode about the Horkinger uh, Chronicles. Well put. Good job, Pastor. <laughs> so, yeah, so we are making another episode about the Horkinger Chronicles. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the things we talked about before. And we also got a bunch of comments and thoughts from uh, you listeners out there. And we're going to talk about some of those, too. Thanks, listeners. Yeah. Y'all are so thoughtful. We got a lot of really good thoughts. Where should we start? Oh, I will say just like a, I was thinking after we did our first recording that I think I was a little unnecessarily harsh on this book. It's like, it really doesn't benefit from the thing that the other Animorphs books benefit from where like they can sort of hint at stuff and then they have all these other books to like develop it. So this book is like a standalone and it tried to do a lot and I feel like I maybe was a little too hard on it. Did that come from your experience of listening back to the episode? Because I listened back to the episode, and I was like, Jenny and Gray are so right. This book could have been so much better. (laughs) No, it was more like I was thinking about what made the other Animorphs books so strong, and it's that they have all this time to show different perspectives and, like, slowly build up this, like, very rich, very rich intellectual and emotional and thematic tapestry. And so not only do they get to get deeper in later books, but they don't feel like they have to accomplish everything right away. Mm-hmm. Although I think we didn't actually get the part where Ted was talking about how much he loved it. So That's true. That part got lost. Oh, shoot. Okay. I have to remember <laughs> what I actually said there. Um, I feel like, though, even our, the last time we recorded this, I didn't put together an articulation of what I actually like about it because Ooh, it almost went without saying. So maybe I can start there, right? <laughs> yeah. We talked a little bit about the horrors of war theme last time, and I think it mostly got lost because Gray mm-hmm. and you had said like the three themes are intelligence, colonialism, and the horrors of war. And we kind of let that one go without saying, mm-hmm. but I feel mm-hmm. like that's the thing that I find so compelling about this story. And we touched mm-hmm. on it a little bit as like, it's just like relentlessly grim. It's a tragedy. All of the good characters die. Like, only bad stuff happens throughout. People make terrible decisions, and, like, Mm -hmm. they're forced into this lose-lose situation, and the narrative doesn't cut anyone any breaks. And I actually think that even though they kind of, the the characters are kind of railroaded from point to point through the thing, I actually really like the arc that it gives us. And I like that this story carries that weight of kind of like, oh, wow, isn't it horrible what this kind of conflict does to people? Because as, like, unsympathetic as Aldrea is, a lot of that motivation comes from seeing her entire family, like, disintegrated in front of her eyes. And even though the way that Dak suddenly sees all of his fellow 
Hork-Bajir turn into these bloodthirsty warriors is like selling the Hork-Bajir short in terms of like mm-hmm. being full characters. It's still, uh, from Dak's perspective, that's still a very valid like experience of having your first battle and saying like, oh, this is this is actually really kind of horrifying. And then mm-hmm. you get the way that time passes and the war gets worse and worse and worse. You have Alarin, the Andalites arrive and they establish this guerrilla group and they're sort of like their forces dwindling over time. Um, things are getting worse and worse and worse. And you kind of see how it's grinding everybody down. And again, you get that conclusion with like the quantum virus, which is, it's a lot more kind of like shenanigans instead mm-hmm. of just wallowing in the grimness of Alarin, like with his finger over a red button, you know, making the call, which is kind of like maybe how you imagine it going when you read the Andalite Chronicles. Mm-hmm. But you still get to see see him and all of them at the end of their ropes in a really interesting way. And then it's like, Alarin's like, we have to destroy the hork to save them at the mm-hmm. end, right? Which is like maybe a little bit of a ham-fisted reference to the Vietnam War again, but it's still like, you know, the kind of interesting, like, oh, well, like we're going to, we're going to try and make this all worth it. And then it's not worth it at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the York empire thrives and goes on to fight. And the whole conflict was like petty and pointless and, and awful. And so yeah. like the fact that it doesn't pull its punches from that theme is something that I really like about it. And like the animorphs obviously can't do that because then you wouldn't read past like the second book, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, mm, I yeah. love that the animorphs has all of that thematic variance. And so like by introducing this thing that's so far removed from the characters we know and love, the authors can be like, hey, actually, this stuff is really bad. Let me just tell you a story yeah. where like everything goes bad. So that's one of the things that I liked about it. No, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that I was that brought that to mind to me is the numbers of the war shift really materially and they call it out. So at the beginning of the conflict, there are hundreds of thousands of Hork-Bajir peacefully and happily living in the valley of this world and like six Yerk ships come and crash. And we don't know how many people are on a Yerk ship, but like not that many. It seems like they're not, you know, settler ships. They don't have a lot of hosts. Yeah, they don't have Exactly. Don't have a lot of hope. I think they have some very crowded year pools, but it's hard to tell. Exactly. And so then suddenly it goes from that to they have tens of thousands of Horkbashir hosts and then 40,000 Horkbashir hosts. And then it goes from that to, you know, hundreds of thousands. Oh, so 2,000 Andalite warriors goes down to 400. And now there were 100,000 Horkbashir controllers my 42 Hork-Bajir warriors uh, were now just 12. So it's just like relentless yeah. for that whole third of the book when they're having this battle. It's their numbers are reducing materially every time they have a skirmish and the controllers are increasing. And it, it's just, it is very brutal. But I think you're right that it emphasizes that point for a reason and a very good one. This is the start of the Yerk takeover and it's not pretty. Yeah, and that sense of like things slipping away, you know, from the good guys, quote unquote, in this conflict, like that hopelessness, like really comes across. And I feel like on the one hand, it's a little bit of a failure that the book doesn't make us care as much as it could about the Horkbajir that are being lost. It's like, if this happened to like Jara and Kat and the free Horkbajir, like at this point in the series, like I would be devastated. Like, we care a lot about them. We don't really care about any of the Hork-Bajir except Dak to that extent. 
But yeah. like, I wonder to what extent that's a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. Like, did they, in showing the grind of this war, did they just not want to grind it in even more by making us care more about the Harpajir? I don't oh know. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's Maybe like, that's, well, that's like thinking it. No, 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 that's so true. I mean, I'm sure that they are fans of like soldier fiction, right? But mm-hmm. like the fact that they wanted to write about like a, yeah, a band yeah. of soldiers, it means that they must read all about like the Civil War novels and like the things they carried or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. that's like such a classic trope is like the band of brothers and they're getting whittled down one by one. So you mm-hmm. meet all these colorful characters and then the final battle of the yeah. movie, half of them get killed off. And it's like, so it makes the tragedy really personal, right? Uh-huh. So like, and it's, you're right, they don't lean into that beat here. Which yeah. I wonder if that is intentional. Like, if, yeah. if Dak's friends were more than caricatures, you'd have to watch them all. And even Aldrea's family, that's really, really horrible. Right. But they, we they, don't know them very well. We don't know them very well. Ciro, we get a little bit of nuance. And we too. don't like him that much. He's, and we don't like him that yeah. much. But, like, the brother, he likes Plays to play video, video games. games. Yeah. And the mother mm-hmm. likes animals. It doesn't have a name. But they're not <laughs> real people we care about. Yeah. And because this was always going to be a tragedy. It's a prequel. They are. They knew when they were going to write it that it was going to be a tragedy. Like maybe they, yeah, maybe they did that on purpose. Maybe that explains the sort of silly, <laughs> quote unquote, romance of the ending too. Where it's like, it's at least they have each oh, other. They're like, oh, because, we need to give them something good. <laughs> because if they, if they didn't even try to say that, it would be like, and now we're stuck together and we don't even like each other that much. Oh well. <laughs> I do kind of like that balance of, like, they are using the romance as, like, a little bit of an up note at the end, but it's not, like, they really don't shy away from showing, like, the messed upness of this romance. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is this a good point to talk about another messed up cross-species thing? It's always (laughs) time to talk about another messed up cross-species thing. So, uh, speaking of cross-species ogling, Uh there's a lot of it in these books, and some of it is... Dak and Aldrea falling in love. Mm-hmm. And some of it is Visser 3 being a real creep. Uh, he has several moments throughout the book where he's just creepily staring at Aldrea and being like, yeah, that one. <laughs> I want that. Oh, it's yeah. so gross. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. It's real gross. And it starts like right from the beginning, the first time that he sees her. She seemed, he says, she seemed beautiful to me. Is that strange? I suppose it is. But there is a compelling beauty in the sight of someone seemingly so small and yet so dangerous. Yes, there was something beautiful in that small, delicate, dangerous creature. Someday, I would tell her how I'd felt at this awful moment. Someday, I would live inside her head, and I would tell her that I had admired her on this day. (laughs) Someday. It's so creepy. When she was my host. It's like the worst... Stalker uh, fantasy, like, objectification thing. It's so icky. It's so icky. Because he's not just, st- like, he's right. not just staring at her. He's like, someday I'm going to live inside her and I'm going to tell right. her. Yeah, like, the love yeah. comes from inside the head. It's really oh, bad. It's so yucky. So, Avian Appeaser, in a comment on our site, said, uh, I would also argue that it's not that he's a nerd so much as an Andalite fetishist, which is exactly what we're seeing in this passage. Mm-hmm. Like, he's obsessed with Aldrea. He's obsessed with Elfengor. He's just yeah. obsessed with Andalites. It is about their, like, body and, mm-hmm. like, the dangerousness of it. I actually kind of love... We had a lot of comments about what makes Visser 3 seem so out of character, which we should get into. But I love the idea that, okay, he finally ended up with his Andalite host. And maybe part of the reason why he is such a terrible leader now is that actually Alaron is a terrible host for him. Like, it's a very toxic host 
slug relationship. Not that they're ever great, but like in particular, like being in Alaran's head is really messing up Visser Three's strategic abilities, like mental stability. But he's so obsessed with Andalites, and this Andalite body is what's gotten him so high in the year hierarchy. He'll never give up that body, even though it's like the worst thing for him. Huh. So I do really like the idea of like host and a Yurk personality bleed or that like Alaric, <laughs> yeah. like he's not strong-willed enough to take control but he's strong-willed enough to get inside the viscer's head right all psychological warfare or <laughs> turn about is fair play but yeah. something else i mean it just occurred to me so viscer three is going after all of these big powerful monster morphs as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like what if he got his andalite body and realized it wasn't enough Right, he's still trying to compensate, like, and find the biggest, strongest, most monstrous and powerful form that he can. And that's why he goes on this tour of the galaxy. Because, like, as good as the Andalites are, it's not enough for him. And he needs to keep getting, like, bigger and more dangerous. Although I do think he's still creepily obsessed with Andalites based on what we just saw in 23, where he goes on this completely impractical, like, four-day morph extravaganza to try to trick you know, Elfengor's son. I think that probably both things are true. I really liked the specificity of some of the uh, comments on that particular idea. So we had quite a number of people, as Jenny said, mention the connection between Aloran and Fitzer Three. So it's the, the personality bleed, but also KS says the power drove him mad. He was conniving, but by the main series, he doesn't need to be anymore. He doesn't need strategy or careful consideration when he can just chop off everyone's heads, which is a really good point. It's like he needed the pressure of like being the underdog in order to motivate him to be like strategic and clever. And now mm-hmm. that he just can waltz around, do whatever he wants, he does that. Someone else commented that maybe Visser 3's twitchiness is like Alaran wresting control from him and so Visser 3 just has to lean into it so people keep getting like injured or decapitated around him because Alaran is like constantly fighting back and so Visser 3 just has to like keep um whoa I don't remember seeing that yeah I don't know hopefully maybe I just stole it from like you know yeah. Animal Facebook or something we stole it from someone sorry someone But that's fascinating. Like, he has to cultivate this sort of power-mad, extravagant persona because otherwise people will be able to tell that that Aloran keeps fighting back. That Aloran keeps successfully making him do things. I also also like later in um, K.S.'s comment, this is Aloran is like this angry, impulsive General Ripper whose solution to everything is murder. So, of course, Visitor 3 is going to learn from that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a really good point. And Avina Pizer pointed out that Visser 3 got to the rank of Visser 3 at some point before Elfengor goes back into the fight in Andalite Chronicles. And then he stays there for 13 years and counting. Mm. And uh, he's managed to maintain this power, but he got what he wanted. And now he his ambition is kind of, I don't know, he does seem to want to rise, but maybe he just can't anymore. Mm. But... Ted has another interesting theory. Yeah, so despite <laughs> despite what everyone has commented <laughs> in, I now have a completely different headcanon that explains the Horkbeager Chronicles. So the narrator of the story is Esplin 9466. Yeah. Right? And noted Andalite nerd, mention of his twin being around for a lot of the same events, but no characterization of the twin in this book. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So what other characters... Do we know that are huge nerds and have the Yurk name Esplin 9466? <laughs> Gee, Ted! <laughs> Joe Bob Finestre from Book 16. There's no reason that this particular Yurk couldn't be 
Joe Bob Fernestre's Yerk, having this experience, narrating the whole thing, basically swapping war stories with uh, the, the slug that goes on to be Visser 3, and just later happening, you know, to not advance as far in the Yerk hierarchy, and his um, more bloodthirsty and mm-hmm. stupider twin, who... Um, has now taken on, he's, he's launched like a propaganda campaign to say that I'm actually the superior one, right? So there's, right. that's so the that's one why, textual inconsistency right. is that this Esplin in this book claims to be the, the superior yeah. one, the primary, and the Esplin that we meet later says that the other guy was the primary. So yeah. other than that, I don't think there's anything in the text that contradicts this theory, and it kind of explains a lot of the characterization <laughs> issues. Although, I mean, the Andalite obsession is the only thing that I feel like is like a through line from this Esplin to Visser 3's character that we would lose. Because Joe Bob doesn't seem that Andalite obsessed. No, but he has invented a way to not go into the Yerk pool, which we can mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. Esplin in the Horkwood Yerk Chronicles has a thing about True, not liking being, in the being from pool. the Yerk pool. Yeah. Mm. But he definitely doesn't pick up on the fact that, well... Neither is Visser Three, but he doesn't pick up on the fact that these that the Animorphs are not Andalites, even though Jake nods his head, which is a human gesture. Joe Bob doesn't pick up on it. Joe Bob does seem a little suspicious that they're like, "Why are you so worried about the human hosts?" But I mean, I feel like Joe Bob doesn't show a lot of Andalite like knowledge or like affinity. Okay, just but just imagine this: <laughs> Joe Bob Fernestre, he's actually super smart. He is this Esplan, and he's uh-huh, uh-huh. he's sitting in his lair late at night, and he's he's thinking through the things. He's putting the pieces together, and he's like, "Oh yeah, so like uh, something, some of those Andalite bandits are humans or whatever." Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. a grizzly bear comes back. Rachel missed out on the whole thing. She's back to murder him, right? And he's like, well, at least before I die, I'll get to see, like, a beautiful Andalite once more. And then she turns into a human, and he's like, what? How could this be? Before she burns down his whole mansion. <laughs> okay, my favorite part of this scenario is that Rachel morphs human, or demorphs to human, <laughs> in order to burn down the mansion, rather than just being a grizzly and killing him. Grizzlies aren't very good at matches, so mm. she needed to demorph. And she knows that she can kill him as a human, because she's very tough as a human, as we have seen. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I, I love the idea that ner- the nerdy Esplan is Joe Bob Finestre. That fits so well. And he's, like, yeah, he's he's very restrained. Like, he, like, takes his time, like, builds things up. He spent years, you know, developing Windows software. I will say, as a side note, someone pointed out on Twitter that Fenestre means window, and this is Bill Gates, and I never put that together, and it's brilliant. It's so stupid. I meant to say that in our thing. I can't believe I didn't. <laughs> yeah, okay, so Gray also gets retroactive credit for that. No, only because I was going to make a defenestration joke, and then mm. I didn't. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what Rachel did when she went back in Grizzly Bear. Yes, she did. Uh, another Esplan thing. So, later, I promise this actually happened. So, Hugin commented with the same theory that I proposed in the in the cut part of the episode last week, which is, they say, one thing you brought up in the past is how slow Esplan is to infest the Animorphs when he catches them. Do you think his experience here with trying to snag Aldrea has made him gun-shy about grabbing a host in an uncontrolled situation? Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. I also had this theory. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That yeah, you have to figure out what to do with the host that, like, the Yerk is leaving and... You know, he he just, like, wants everything to be very controlled. He's probably used to a very controlled situation when he goes into the Yerk Bowl. Right. That makes sense. Uh, Should we talk about what does happen when he tries to infest her? Sure. For anyone who hasn't read it. So uh, he's trying to infest her. She's in Hork-Bajir Morph at the time. And he 
basically has his um, minions hold her down, and he sticks his hork head next to her hork head and crawls out of the one into her head. And then lots of... He has some really creepy thoughts about it. And he says to her, you are mine, my slave. I could not wait to get completely wrapped around her brain. And <laughs> it's like I had to see inside her memories, all of them. And I opened my mind and memories to letting her see all that I was, all that I had been. I wanted her to fear me, to understand how hopeless her life was now. And then the former host body that he has just crawled out of realizes it is now himself again or herself again and knocks out the guards who are holding down Aldrea. So she is able to kind of get him out of her ear and she pulls him out and throws him onto the ground of, of the ship and he thinks he's going to die. And yet in my powerless rage, there was a part of me that could still, that still could think of nothing but that sweet memory of the overwhelming beauty of an Andalite running free. Super gross. And no wonder he doesn't want to do this again. This like not, doesn't go well for him. Premature yeah. uninfestation. It's traumatic. The interesting thing, so this is the reason, the textual reason that Hark Bajir know Esplan's side of the story, right? Because yeah. Aldrea yeah. remembers it and incorporates it into the narrative. Which right? is a lot of memory absorption when he was still far enough out of her ear that she could pull him out right. with her hand. But it's also interesting that she seems so affected by this experience. Mm-hmm. It seems like, despite Esplan being a huge creeper, it, this experience humanizes the Yurks for Aldrea. This is this is when she like is more willing to turn away from being an Andalite, mm. having seen the yeah. perspective. I was really skeptical of that because for two two reasons. First, because she spent a significant part of her childhood on the Yurk homeworld, presumably interacting with Yurks. Her father loved the Yurks; like she must have seen the best side of them they had to present at that point. And second, the Yurk perspective she gets. Is Visser 3. Like, <laughs> Visser 3 who's like, I must have your beautiful Andalite body, and it's all I want, and I love subduing host minds. Like, really? That's when she's like, wow, there are two sides to this conflict. Well, maybe the, yeah, that's true. I was going to say, maybe the memories she got are ones that aren't in this story, but that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> well, he doesn't really have that many memories. Like, he was born in the pool on the ship. And, and I was particularly struck by that in part because all the time she spent with the Hork-Bajir and falling in love with Dakami and seeing these brave warriors fall. And it's hanging out with the Yurk that's changing her mind about not wanting to be an Andalite. <laughs> All right, sure. But also maybe could have but taken also, a step to think about that. she didn't need to change her mind at that point. She had already, like, her moment of decision was when she found out about the quantum virus. And she was like, no, you know, yesterday when I said I was with you guys, I was lying. But today, no, I'm, yeah, done with being an Andalite. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm not sure. I think she's somehow, the text shows her being disturbed by what she sees in Esplan's head. But it's really unclear what effect that has on her. I don't think we get her perspective mm-hmm. again. What if it's more like a, I mean, I think it seems like it's more, it's going to be more traumatic to have your mind partially taken over by Visser 3. So what if she is reacting against this? fetishization of being an Andalite. Yeah. She's like, I can be something else. I don't want to I don't <laughs> want to deal with the baggage that comes with being an Andalite anymore. Yeah, I mean it is like sort of an assault. Like Yeah. 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 I mean it is it is an assault. Mm-hmm. And she so it, maybe her disturbed reaction is yeah. And she does kind of have tail envy, right? She talks about how <laughs> 
she's fighting the monster and she's like, well, if I, if I were bigger, I could have chopped the monster's hand off in one blow instead of three. And like, that's why she decides to become a hork, but you're so many blades. Right, right, right. But I was going to say that she, she seems to be like, we talked about how it's kind of, sh- it's like a shallow import yeah, of yeah. this, this whole issue, but at least it's presented textually. She's kind of like, oh man, I wish I were a boy mm-hmm. so that I could, or I wish I were stronger. You know, I wish they would take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. having a chance to, you know, reinvent herself in a more bladed, non-andalite, <laughs> not going to be creeped on by Mr. Three anymore body. Yeah. Seems like it would be an appealing escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our commenters, Avina Peaser, suggested that she did not really choose to be a Morphogeer, which I think we should talk about. Um, they say, did she really choose this? To stand with him, sure. But I always felt like becoming a Nothlet after morphing a Morphogeer for the first time was kind of an accident that she just made the best of. That she morphed in the first place so she and Dad could move through the trees with the canister. Which... But she I, gets knocked out, right? Yeah, <laughs> but it it really felt felt to me like she was making that decision the first time she morphed the Harkvajir. She's like, no, no, this is it. And then I looked up textual evidence, which it's like not completely conclusive. Yeah. Well, I think knowing Aldrea, she would have had second thoughts or <laughs> or at least thought about it, right? Like even if she was intending to do it in that moment, mm-hmm. she doesn't commit to the choice the way that Cassie does in book 19. Yeah. Because she gets knocked out. So, like, I think it's... That's true. She doesn't have the option yeah, I think to... it could be both ways. That, like, she was like, oh, I'm doing this dramatic thing. And then maybe an hour later, she'd be like, what am I thinking? <laughs> yeah, because she's definitely... I feel like she's definitely choosing the dramatic thing. She says, like, when she does morph, she's like... He's like, can you morph the chidu? And he's like... She's like, no, if I do that, I won't be able to hold the canister. I have a better idea. And she... I mean, she could have given the canister to him, but... She morphs the Horkbajir and says, we're in this together, Dak. If the quantum virus is released, now I will die too. I don't want that, he says. I do, Dak. I'll live or die with you. And that really sounds like it's a decision. Like, I will. But it's also like, because it'll take less than two hours for us to get the quantum (laughs) virus to safety. So I'll live and die with you during this high stakes mission. Right. So I can see it the other way. I also read it. I read it as her committing Mm -hmm. to being a Horkbajir. But it's interesting that she got like... She at least reflects on, like, oh, the, the window has passed. Yeah. Right. And also, does she get knocked out? She When she gets infested, or partially infested, she says it's an hour and a half. Does mm-hmm. she get knocked out for an hour and a half? People don't get knocked out that long. Like, that's not... But people do in movies and books all the time. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like that... <laughs> so she was actually unconscious I mean, it, for an hour and a half. Who knows? Well, I think saying to Visser 3 that it's for an hour and a half is actually textual evidence for her basically having committed to this mm-hmm. course of action, mm-hmm. because... She's telling him, I'm not going to demorph, and in an hour and a half, I oh, can yeah. never do it again. Yeah. And then after that is when she gets knocked out and is like, and now I'm forever going to be like this. So I do actually think that there is textual evidence. Yeah, well, it's hard to say because she right then is captive, held captive by a person who wants an Andalite body. So she might be doing it in that moment as mm-hmm. an act of resistance against him rather than a reflection of her independent choice. Mm-hmm. But I think I think you're probably right. And I've always interpreted it that way. And I actually think that it's Dak who's unconscious for the whole time. Oh, yeah. He wakes up. He wakes up. He loses consciousness. When he, he wakes up again, Aldrea is there in her corporate form and she's bleeding. He loses consciousness again. And then it was daylight when I next opened my eyes. Mm. So I think he gets knocked out for the whole night, which, by the way, not a great sign. Um, <laughs> Maybe he just fell asleep after that. Uh-huh. It's okay. He's going to die with the virus anyway. And then she she says... Um, the, the time limit has passed. So I actually think it's not that she gets knocked out for that whole time. It's that she actually did make that decision overnight. That mm-hmm. She could have demorphed while he was unconscious, but yeah. she didn't. 
So another point of contention, or a thing that our commenters brought up, several of them, that I had not considered, was that Ket Halpak might have been pregnant before she and Jara got free. I also didn't consider this. It makes an unfortunate amount of sense. It, it does. I, I think mean, that that's... I think that that's... The thing is, it doesn't make sense either way, because Toby in book 23 is not a six-month-old child. Like No, but, I mean, I think the point is that, that Toby is as old, like, as old as possible. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. not even if the difference is between four months and six months. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It makes a lot more sense to me that they were the Yurks were breeding Horkbajir yeah. in captivity. I mean, Ket could and... not have been very pregnant because well, I mean I guess the Yurks might not have been paying attention, like if Tobias morphs her and suddenly has like isn't recognizable as the same Horkbajir. Oh yeah. I mean I guess we don't really know how Acquiring Horkbajir. a pregnant person works. <laughs> or how Horkbajir, Horkbajir pregnancy works. works. Maybe they don't yeah, I mean, maybe Somehow, it's, yeah. as we've discussed in the past, maybe it's eggs, in which case. <laughs> okay, but if it's the, eggs, the baby... then she wouldn't have escaped with the baby. They didn't have an egg with them. Well, that we know of. Where did they keep it? Maybe they're marsupials. <laughs> maybe the baby just ate some Z-space. Oh my god. Sure. The arm got really creative. There's another reason why I think this must be the case. Mm-hmm. It's because the Elemist is the worst. It's the yep. Elemist pattern. Right, so he... Significant cross-species baby with a name like Toby gets conceived. <laughs> right, but the, the issue is, with his all-seeing Elemist powers, he sees that Toby, as a controller, is a huge tactical advantage for the Yurks, because she's arguably going to be the smartest controller around for the invasion of Earth. Right, so... Any... How much smarter is, is Toby than a human? Much smarter. Really? I think Dak is, like, textually way smarter than everybody he talks to. Right? He means advanced calculus in, like, two months. That's true. That's true. Okay. So I'm right. assuming I'm assuming that all Orkbajir seers are, like, really next level in okay. terms of their, right. their mental capacity. So I'm, I'm assuming that the Elmist is like, oh, crap, a Orkbajir seer is going <laughs> to be a huge disadvantage for my side. So let me, let like me rescue. That's why these specific... Herpajir at this time. He's like, okay, we have yeah. to get we have to get the seer out of there. I mean, I feel like it's more likely to be sort of the the opposite where it's not that controller Toby is gonna be such a threat because the ear in her head is just gonna like crush her mind anyway. I think it's that free Toby is a huge opportunity. Mm. And it's sort of the same pattern as with Tobias. He's like, oh, Tobias is conceived, time to put these pieces into place so that Tobias can become an animorph. And no, that's, that's a good point. This is, yeah. Oh, Toby's conceived. Time to put the pieces in place so that Toby can like lead the free hork in this valley. Well, especially because we learn from this book that seers come along when there's going to be a big change mm-hmm. or you know something important is going to happen. Now, that is from the hork so Right. So maybe it's that the seers caused the change to happen. <laughs> that's actually, yeah, around. that's really likely. But I think it makes a certain amount of sense to the hork mythology that yeah. she's there when this big change happens. Oh, yeah. yeah I think the Elmist on his own brings enough predestination problems into the series that I don't want to go for, like, Hork Bajir mythology is literally true. <laughs> Toby's fate is written in the stars. So it makes me really sad, though, to think that Jarrah and Ket were married in a the Yurks forced us to mate, we didn't know each other before way, which, like, maybe that's true, and maybe they managed to, like, forge this bond, and maybe in book 13 is the first time they saw each other free. But I don't know, it just doesn't quite feel like the way they're presented to me. Like when Jarrah escapes, he's like, no, my wife. Like if he'd never interacted with her 
if only the Yerks and their heads had interacted with each other, I don't know, it really cheapens their relationship. And we do have the possibility of, like someone pointed out in the comments, that Jara said that when he was young, he tasted the bark of the trees on his homeworld. And so possibly, somehow, he was born into freedom and captured later. Right. It's not impossible. Well, okay, so what if... That was also Avian Appeaser who suggested that. Really good comment. So yeah, I agree that that's an inconsistency. But I was just thinking, um, they're not infested 100% of the time. So maybe mm. their relationship mm-hmm. develops over, you know, three oh. days after three days where they, they happen to be at the same infestation schedule, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're free involuntary controllers in the Yerk pool. And so maybe they oh, forge their relationship there. That's sort of wonderful. Right. And so it could even be that they they have this kind of connection and maybe the Yerks kind of like go along with it. And so as yeah. part of like the breeding program, it's like, well, at least we might as well. You yeah, know, the we Yerks don't in actually, their head are like, yeah, these two, they're into each other. Let's do this. Right. We don't actually know how, I mean, we Aftran exists, right? So we actually don't know that the two Yerks infesting them were Tamrashes instead of people who are closer that's to Aftran. And with the Chapmans, at least, you can see like Chapman's Yerk kind of wants to do something for the man, even yeah, though he yeah, can't yeah. admit, yeah. right? So there's actually, there could be a pretty wide space of, like, possibilities. For, That's really true. For a story there. You guys, mm-hmm. I really, really now want to read the story of these two Horkbatir falling in love over the course of many, many infestation periods. Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. I don't think I'm going to write it, but maybe I will. You never know. I, what I really want, I really want someone else to write it so I can. Yeah, I want it to exist now so I can go read it after yes, we finish recording. Yes. That's what I want. Maybe a miracle will happen and someone has already written this and someone will just tell us when we post the episode. They're like, no, no, that story exists and we can go read it. It'll be great. Uh, this is great. So, um, something I wanted to bring up again is one of the moments that I really love is how the Hork don't see themselves as scary, but everyone else kind of universally mm-hmm. does. So, Tobias brings up at the beginning when he sees Jeremy. He smiles and he's like, Tobias is like, I know what a Horkbajir smile looks like now. So I recognize that he was being friendly, but anyone else would have just run away screaming because it's mm-hmm. this big walking thing of blades. It's like absolutely terrifying. And so Dak obviously does not know this about himself, that people would see him as scary. And like Aldre and her family aren't scared of the Horkbajir because mm-hmm. they think they can defend themselves, yeah. right? And also they, they kind of understand the whole thing. But the Arn who have created the Horkbajir are terrified of them. Because, you know, they are and create all sorts of monsters, including Horpajir, right? And so mm-hmm. when Aldrea and Dak go into Arnland and they accost <laughs> that one Arn who has the long name that's unmemorable, mm-hmm. the Arn tries to blow them off and Dak just like puts out his arm to like stop the guy and just say, no, we, we really need to talk to you. Like really sincerely, I, I'm not going to let you leave. And the Arn is like, ah, get away from me. And Dak suddenly has something clicks for him where he's like, oh gosh, like this is like other people see me in this totally different way from how I see, I conceptualize myself. And I found that moment very powerful. It's like a really good thing to see from his perspective. And this reminds me of the thought that I shared during our lost footage, which is that it's super weird the way Aldrea characterizes the monsters that the Arn create. Aldrea says, while they're leading the Arn's monsters into battle, It was a sad, sick collection. In a better world, a world of peace and justice, someone would have punished the arm for what they had done. Twisting life to make monsters is an evil thing to do. And I read that. That never gets particularly called into question. It never really gets referenced again. 
But what the heck makes them monsters? Like, they describe all these very, like, strange-looking creatures. You know, there's there's the one that's, like, only a few feet tall, but, like, 20 feet wide. And there's the Laird effect, which we saw in Book 11 with, like, all the vines for arms. And, and it's like, yeah, they're kind of, like, scary-looking. They're, like, pretty different from Andalites or Horpajir. But, like, what is it that makes it wrong that the aren't created them? Is it because they're not sentient? They're not intelligent enough? Is it because they're predators and they eat other creatures? Like, what makes them monstrous? They were created to be weapons instead of created to be peaceful. To be tree herders? <laughs> right, like, yeah. It's yeah. a really weird note. I don't understand it. It's weird, and it, it's repeated a couple of times where she calls them genetic freaks at one point, and I think part of the reason it's weird is that she doesn't think that about the Hork-Bajir, who yeah, are also no. created for a specific purpose. Yeah, And, like, you could be very generous and say, oh, it's intentional hypocrisy on Aldrea's part, but <laughs> I don't think it's oh, written that way. Yeah, I don't think it is, though. Maybe it's that Andalites don't like being not the most dangerous creatures in the room, and when there's a more dangerous creature, she has to, like, put it down and invalidate it somehow. Like, oh, well, that is a monster and shouldn't exist. Mm. It's not that I am weaker than it, or it, it's not that it is stronger than me. It's not that I'm outclassed. I think I might have brought this up last time, too, and got a muted reaction. But <laughs> it, maybe it's just kind of like a weird, like, oh, you know, like, cloning is bad. Like, messing with the sanctity <laughs> of life is bad. Just, like, insert. And it's, like, almost thoughtless in how, like, how that should apply to the work Bajir, but doesn't, right? Yeah. It's, it seems, yeah. like, imported from, like, a totally different set of circumstances. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that was my thought, too, is if what you're really judging them for is creating life for their own purposes, then you really, the work Bajir need to be in that umbrella, and if they're not, then you're just being hypocritical. Maybe it is the thing where they created these monsters for their own protection and then they control them with their minds instead of creating a species that then lives free. Mm. They're creating sort of like oh, they're a like, robot army, but they're, you know, organic. They're right. a monster army. Yeah. It's almost like if you, if the way morphing worked was you like just created a mindless animal you controlled with your mind. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird presentation of that, though, because it's not like they're ever like, free the monsters, life for the monsters. I don't know. I said this last time, but I continue to think that I would like more of the story of these monsters, because I think they're pretty cool, and I want to know what they think about this whole nonsense. Yeah. Maybe they're not allowed to think anything because the Arn are controlling their thoughts the way the Yerks do. I don't like the Arn. No, no one likes the Arn. There was a lot of stuff about the Arn and the quantum virus. Should we get into that? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Okay. Rina had some thoughts about the quantum virus. There were a bunch of theories. Well, wait. This is the why, mm-hmm. why we're not yours. Oh, so. yes. Yes. This is because it's important context. Did we got, talk about that in the first episode? We talked about it in the first episode because <clears throat> okay. I, got really, I got really grumpy about how if you had the ability to yeah. create a virus, you would create it to attack the Horkbajir and not the ears. Yeah. People are idiots. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, luckily, people responded and suggested reasons why it might not be as crazy as I thought. Yeah, Serena so had a few theories. One, that the virus is airborne, so uh, the Yerks are either in the Yerk pool or they're in someone's head, so it can't reach them. I don't know. Um, I know there's like a blood-brain barrier with like illness in the human body. I don't know if that means that if a hork inhaled the virus, it would not reach the Yerk in its head. It's possible. Sure. I mean, the Arn can apparently engineer their brains to <laughs> self-destruct when a Yurk infests them. So I'm, That's a good point. I think the blood-brain barrier is totally optional. 
But they can't engineer the Harkajir at this point, so... No, I'm just saying it could, yeah. have, it could have gone either way. Yes, mm. that's true. Uh, yeah, so also, you know, Yurks are protected inside their host bodies, maybe. They don't have enough information, DNA information on the Yurks. I think, uh, yeah, Avian and are also suggested that, that the Arn knew the Harkajir genome very well. And they didn't, yeah. you know, it, hadn't it, mapped them. It makes sense to one. me that, like, the Andalites knew how to do a quantum thingamajigger, and the, they just, but you need really specific biodata, and so this was the only solution that they could crib together, mm-hmm. right? And they hadn't, I guess, I mean, you'd think that maybe then they would, like, capture a Yurk and try and study it in mm-hmm. order to be able to pull this off, but yeah. maybe it was very much like a last-ditch thing, mm-hmm. or, the, you know, the idea was put on ice until... You yeah. know, like, three, it maybe didn't take that long to put together. And possibly once they the Arn to do came it. up with it, because maybe the Arn were like, oh, we created this species. Turns out that was a mistake, because now these Yerks are infesting them and they're turning against us. Let's just erase our creation. Mm. Right. Well, so, so maybe right. they so were the already reason, working on it. No, that's that's true. They were probably working on something like it. The, the only, the reason that I thought that the quantum virus came from the Andalites was because, like, the Andalites seem to know what a quantum virus is That's enough true. that it's, like, good point. the equivalent of, you know, a nuclear bomb mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. terms of how bad it is if you're responsible for blowing one up on people. That's the impression that we get of what Alrin did. Yeah. Rena's last theory about the quantum virus was that maybe they have a strong element of instability that can cause them to mutate and attack other unintended species eventually. Since Horkajir are entirely contained on an unimportant planet, it's okay, quote-unquote, to use it there. Whereas Yurks are now in multiple sections of the galaxy, in contact with multiple species, and the limit oh. of acceptable risks to Andalites is now too high. Which, I don't know. I mean, the Yurks are taking the Horgajir off-world already. I, I feel like if that were a risk, they would have been brought up. Right. I like I like the sort of pandemic theory of, like, <laughs> the quantum virus is highly unstable. But, yeah. but then it doesn't make sense because we know that, like, in... Um, Jera's lifetime, they've been back to the Herpager homeworld. So either the quantum virus has dissipated, yeah, or yeah. It's, it can't be that uh, infectious. Right. And like when Aldrea's like, you know, we would never do that. Mm-hmm. She She's not like, and also it's super dangerous to the rest of the galaxy. Like, I just, I feel like she would <laughs> right. bring that yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. If yeah. there was any, if there was any way for Aldrea to rationalize it, she would have. <laughs> it's so abhorrent that even Aldrea cannot uh, stand for it. Yeah. So we get to see Alrin having his his moment, um, his war crime moment in this book. And at first you read it and it's kind of like, actually, Aldrea and Dak rob him of this thing. So like, you could almost read it as like, oh, he's carrying this chip on his shoulder uh, because everyone blames him for releasing the quantum virus because he was overseeing it. But actually, he didn't do it. Right? <laughs> this Technically Aldrea true. and Dak screwed it up and took it out from under him. But... I don't like that because I just did that bit in the Andalite Chronicles where we get Visser Three gloating about how Alarin feels bad about what he did, or like mm-hmm. he says he says something about Alarin, you know, on the Ravage Short Bajir homeworld. And I like I like I prefer I don't need Alarin to be kind of like whitewashed at all. So I, I think that probably Alarin does regret like he made the call to create the quantum virus. And he was planning to release it. Mm-hmm. Probably had Aldrea and Dak not interfered, it would have been a lot more effective. And he yeah. might have caused the Horkbadir to go extinct. Mm-hmm. So he still has to carry the weight of that decision, even though he also screwed up the plan. <laughs> and has, like, you know, made yeah. the war effort so much and worse. And possibly, right? so, like we said in Andalite Chronicles, if he had succeeded logistically at wiping out the Horkbadir so that the Yerks couldn't use them as hosts, 
he actually wouldn't be reviled. Like yeah, they, they could have just covered they, it up. Yeah, they right? would have just he would have been celebrated. And exactly. They would, oh, something bad happened. You know, there but was this unimportant backwater planet, and he did a terrible. You know, thing. Yeah. the um, these meaningless hosts. You know, the Yurks. Oh, the tragedy. The, you know, the, the Yurks killed off this host species. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. blah blah blah. We were able to keep them from you know spreading throughout the galaxy using these hosts, but alas, casualties of war. You know, right, right, right. So. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about, like, Alrin, because he's one of the more interesting secondary characters. And other than Esplin, he's the only other character we get a lot of outside of this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's also kind of funny that they, I think they never interact in this book, even though they're going to be spending a lot of time (laughs) together later on. Uh. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that's true. Uh But I like, so Alrin's also a really good, what I like about him here is how he fits into the kind of, war story feeling Mm -hmm. because you get so right at the beginning you get the like young brash upstart alrin who coins the term Ciro's kindness he's like one of the commanders on the york home world when things go bad and he's like Ciro, you've been messing this up for ages you know how could you think that you know how could you think that these yorks were gonna play by the rules you were setting we knew we couldn't trust them right and you get to see both like he's so torn up about the fact that so many of his soldiers have just been killed by the Yerks, mm-hmm. but he's also using that to kind of like justify his and his troops' prejudices against the Yerks. Because mm-hmm. in that video feed that we see of that first attack, the Andalites are like, hey, filthy slugs, stay away from my spaceship, you know, and then yep. they get they get mowed down, right? So like, it, you, you get this moment where it's like, oh, things, you know, it's just a normal day for the soldiers, right? And then things can go bad at any moment. And you also get this, like, well, sort of the who shot first thing. The Andalites are, like, mm. treating the Yerks badly. The Yerks are treating the Andalites badly. And things mm-hmm. kind of escalate for no real reason, right? It's just like a tiny little event that sets off this huge chain of events, right? Really? I thought it was the Yerks' plan to escalate. Like, the, this was the Yerks' first blow, and they were prepared to steal the ship, go steal a bunch of other Yerks, and escape. This was, like, their big move for freedom. Yeah, okay. No, that's that's true. I think I was overstating it. But, like, the the circumstances that lead up to it, right, it's like the Yurks set off this plan, and then they escape, and then the Andalites shut down the Yurk homeworld, and then it's kind of, like, off to the races. The whole, the whole war kind of falls out from there, because they're not able to contain it mm-hmm. in that one moment. And you get to see Alrin, because of this circumstance, is, like, elevated to being super important by the time he shows yeah. up again later in the book. And you see that being in power has only added to his incredible ego and he's like super arrogant right and then he resents being asked to come down to the home world uh to the horkbajir home world and he condescends to dak and is like you're a stupid horkbajir and then of course dak is like actually would you like me to give you our report (laughs) here's what i can tell you about the mining facilities blah 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 blah. does this info dump and eleanor's like oh (laughs) Um, but the great thing about alaran is to his credit once he realizes, he's sort of like, yeah, so we thought, oh, you Harkbajir were stupid. Aldrea, we didn't take your warning seriously because you're a girl and you're Ciro's daughter. And the Andalites aren't going to be here for a long time. This is all you get. Mm-hmm. But then he's like, so the circumstances are really bad. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to go to war and just make it work, right? And so yeah, yeah. it's like, it's almost very Marco in his ability <laughs> to be like, okay. I now understand reality. the yep. reality of the situation mm-hmm. and even like, and I'm just going to do what I have to do. Right. He's yeah. like ultimately a good soldier, right? Like yeah. he wants to fight the Erks and there's no happy ending in this book, but that they are able to resist for as long as they do is probably good. Right. Despite yeah. how it all turns yeah. out. 
Yeah, it's it's funny that we the moment we get Alaron first in this book is when he's like, "Ugh, Ciro, you're so stupid. You messed this up." And the, the implicit like, "If I had been in charge, we never would have given the Yerks as much latitude. We wouldn't be in this situation. You really like bollocked up this whole thing." And then at the end of the book, you get that sort of happening to him, where his very very risky operation with this quantum virus goes totally awry, and he ends up in this logistical mess where, I mean, you know, I don't know that it was exactly his fault. Like, it's not like he really bungled the delivery of the virus. It's that, you know, Dak and Eldrea stole it. But he ends up sort of in the position that he put Ciro in at the beginning, where it's like, oh, you did a really stupid thing. You thought you could handle this big operation, and you didn't. Right. Do we want to talk about colonialism? Yes. <laughs> so I want to talk about post-colonial theory. All right. As it applies to the animorphs. Postcolonial theory is, from like a literary criticism perspective, it's a theory that looks at issues of power, economics, politics, religion, culture, and how those elements work in relation to the Western colonialization. Mm -hmm. So Western colonizers controlling the colonized and how all of these kind of different aspects of our world fit together into that structure. And I think that this book is an excellent example of post-colonial literature. Specifically, what it reminded me most of was other post-colonial science fiction mm-hmm. written in response to the Vietnam War, which is a very narrow category that has a surprising number of books in it. <laughs> like what? So my favorite example of it is a book by Ursula Le Guin called uh-huh. The Word for World is Forest. And in this novella, it's quite short, won the Hugo Award. Uh, It is about a forested world populated by peaceful herbivores that is taken over by Western colonizers, in this case, humans, uh, who show up to take advantage of the natural resources on their world. In the process of it, they treat this native herbivore species very poorly Mm -hmm. because they know that this species is very dumb. They may be sentient, but they don't speak. They don't have any written language. They're Mm -hmm. all too stupid to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And eventually, this book came out years ago, I don't think it's a huge spoiler that there's an uprising, right? And one important aspect of the book is the response to colonialization, but also the devastating effect that violence can have on a peaceful civilization. So I think there are some parallels. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there are. <laughs> um, but also I think that this book deals really well and in a sort of nuanced and interesting way with the different species that are coming to colonize mm-hmm. the Hork-Bajir homeworld. Because we find out, I mean, it, at the beginning of the book, it's the Andalites are coming and they're coming to learn. They're not going to enforce their culture on, on the Hork-Bajir they have certain prejudices uh, that they have. Right. They're not the Hork Bajir don't really have culture. <laughs> they don't have simplistic yeah. language. They have music. They don't have yeah. real. Yeah, ironically, they aren't going to force their culture on the Hork Bajir because they don't think the Hork Bajir are even capable of learning it. Right. Which, as it turns out, as we learn, is completely incorrect. But then you get the Yerks who are coming literally to colonize. I mean, to take over these individuals. And the next round of Andalites, 
led by Aldrea, are also now giving some of their warlike culture and kind of imposing it on this group of Hortpajir. And what's interesting about it too, though, is that then you get the arm who created the Hortpajir, and that's its own like weird nuance and side effect. But I think that that initial conflict is something that really speaks to this theory of reading literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so well put. And like, I think it reminds me of that line where Dak is like, well, we've already lost because we either have to be killers or be slaves, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like, because of the Yurks as a colonizing force coming in, then like, Aldre is able to use the Horkbajir as a lever to get her revenge, right? Mm-hmm. She's like, she's like, okay, well now you have this one terrible choice, so I'm going to force this other terrible choice on you for my own purposes. And she's incredibly transparent about, like, she's not doing this to defend the Horkbajir. She's doing this to get revenge on the Yurks for killing her family. She's like, I knew that she actually specifically keeps Dak with her instead of letting him go defend his people or warn his people or anything. She's like, you know, I knew I was being selfish, but I, you know, I had one goal and I was going to see it through. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we can we can dip our toes back into the intelligence stuff a little bit, but like it's it's really interesting how the you get the sort of post-colonial stuff where like Dak is the one who can kind of show up all of the colonizers by being like, actually Horkbadir are smart and cultured. Yeah. Even though textually he's like a super person. Right. <laughs> But there are some really good moments of that. So I mentioned the one with Alrin earlier where Dak kind of knows that he's being looked down upon. and He's like, I'm going to rattle off a list of minerals that the Yurks are harvesting at their various spaces around the planet right? <laughs> to show up, to show up Alrin. And I guess, I guess what's interesting is that like, I guess maybe as readers were supposed to generalize from like, oh, well, Dak can like defend his people to all the other Herpajir. But you no. think that in the text, Alrin would just be like, oh, okay, so there's one smart one. Right? <laughs> and, like no one ever, no one ever yeah. points that out as a matter of fact in that, in that same kind of condescending way. The other moment that stands out to me is when like, so I really like how while Aldrea likes Dak and acknowledges his intelligence and stuff, she still has this filter on when she's looking looking at him and kind of expecting him to act a certain way and it's the moment is when he meets his maker right like um she thinks to herself oh i figured it out the arn have like genetically engineered the horpajir should i tell dak like if i tell him he's gonna like bow down before his creator you know like she's kind of expecting him to be like have his mind blown or whatever and then when he he's also kind of put it together but instead of being like oh wow you're my, you're my creator and i'm finally getting to meet you like this is such a transformative moment for me he's just like okay so what you're saying is you need us as part of your planet's <laughs> like climate control system yeah mm-hmm. so you're gonna do what i say <laughs> That's interesting. I thought she was afraid that he would be horrified to learn that he'd been genetically engineered. I don't know why that was my assumption. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's been too like again. It's yeah. been too long since I actually read it to be able to call out <laughs> specific words. Yeah, we kind of already like you know beat the drum pretty hard on the the topic of like Zach is the only Herbiger we see, but he's you know very different. And I just when I was listening to the footage from this episode, I put together something that seems like a really obvious connection that maybe we actually brought out in the episode, but I don't think it had occurred to me that the connection between Aldrea's like, I'm not like other females and Dax like, I am different from the Harkvajir. And like both of those as like, you know, it's kind of great. They're both like outsiders and it brings them together. But it's also like we talked about how completely crappy it is, like the form of feminism that's like, well, I'm not like other girls. I'm a cool girl. I like warrior stuff. 
And right. Dak kind of has the same thing that he's like the flowers for Algernon thing. Yeah, he's he's not like other Horkbajir, and yet he's the representative we get of the species. And that's why I think Jarrah is such a better Horkbajir character, because he is like other Horkbajir. And we actually get to see that depth. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, and I actually think, again, it's like a, a weakness of this book compared to the, the rest of the series. Because like, I think if you pretend that all the Horkbajir in this book are Jarrah Hami, it would work a lot better. Like, just because right. he's such a better, more interesting character. Yeah. And KS left a comment sort of saying, like, yeah, so we get from the framing device that we learned, the Horkbajir have this really rich oral history where they're able to memorize these long pieces of story and pass them down through the generations. And there's other stuff with the way that the Animorphs underestimate Jera and, like, they're not, like, literally four-year-olds in terms of their intelligence. It's just, yeah. like, they're, they're having trouble communicating. Right. It's a very different kind of intelligence. Right. And that's even something like the study of intelligence is a whole field of psychology. And I don't know that much about it. But like, what we think of as intelligence on IQ tests is not the only form of intelligence there is. And, you know, KS asks this, like, what is what is intelligence? Right. I guess the thing that jumped out to me about KS's comment is that, like, in the context of the series, if you ignore the, like, textual evidence of this kind of, like, fantasy of, like, the Horkbajir are actually dumb as bricks, except <laughs> one out of every a thousand is super intelligent. If that were not in the text, the series as a whole probably would do a good job of presenting the Horkbajir as <laughs> like, oh, they're like a species that have a different kind of knowledge and they have a different kind of civilization. And it's, yeah. it's really this kind of like post-colonial lens to read it through. Whereas like my takeaway from listening to the footage and like thinking about what I like and don't like about this book is like it actually bothers me a lot more in the world of the Animorphs that like the fantasy that they're embracing is not one where all sentient species are equals, but one where there is like textually this strict hierarchy of intelligence that would support an oppressive system of categorizing or like like locking people into castes based on their natural abilities and stuff, right? It's like yeah. the idea of intelligence testing is like it's, it's like a racist power fantasy. It's the excuse yeah. for yeah. justifying slavery, right? And so like creating a world where the arm can say like, yeah, I programmed these like these work bajir my like my dumb little programs, and there's a glitch that makes one of them as smart as me. Like mm -hmm. that's like a, a terrible thing to like want. Right, it's like a terrible fantasy to put out there in the world and imagine. It's like uh, it's always going back to like the yeah. monsters thing, like the fact that the Arn are like creating sub sentient species to be their minions should be a lot more sinister than is presented here. Yeah, I I don't know because I'm not sure. Like, I kind of like the idea of like there are all of these different species in the galaxy, and like they don't all necessarily have to have the same level of intelligence and. The Animorphs series as a whole seems to be saying, and the Horkbajir are valid, despite this. The presence of the Horkbajir seers undermines that a little well, bit, I feel. Yeah. But... No, but, so, I want to get into this more. I, I feel really unprepared for this kind of, like, uh, the level of discourse that I want to get to here. But, like, what you were talking about, how the, the like, it fits into this kind of, like, Vietnam War type stuff. We talked about how, like, the Horkbajir are a problematic, like, race comparison. And one of the things oh, yeah. that... Not cool. Right. So one of the things that I was thinking about was kind of, like, the intelligence thing is also, like, a disability comparison at the same time, right? It's, like, the way that racism and ableism interact. It's, like, this, like, simplistic every species is a monoculture thing. 
having that yeah. work for both race and disability, especially the way the Yurks are talking about like how mu- how much they want to like level up in terms of their abilities by infesting other host species, it really doesn't work. Uh, this sort of all species are human that are like everybody, all humans are human and are worthy of respect works as kind of like a race theme and race is like mostly constructed socially. Right. Mm-hmm. But like this idea that like the hork are like a race that is constructed to be subhuman suddenly doesn't, if you're trying to do the race parallel, it's almost like it's a really encouraging bad, like, race that, parallel. right. Yeah. It's encouraging that really awful fantasy if you try and export it to the real world. Yeah. Right. And I, I think clearly they weren't trying to do that. Like it was sub- um, unconscious, if anything, making that parallel. But I was reading that into it. Something that Jenny, you you said last time, I think you and Ted had this conversation about. It, it's not necessarily that the spectrum of intelligence is the issue. It's what that says about their validity. That it's not validity in these books or like being a person isn't a binary. It's not a like you are smart enough to be a person. You are not. It feels like there's more to it than that. Like the hork are, as you say, like they're valid. They're part of these civilizations, but also like they're not that smart. So it's okay if we don't think about them Mm. in that way. And I think that it, to some extent, is a little closer to the binary. Like they are sentient species, therefore they are people. And that's where I think it gets a little tricky in terms of, as you guys were saying, the the form versus the content that they're saying that... The hork are, you know, just as good as the rest of us. They're really treating them in the text that way. And similarly, you know, I think KS is absolutely right that the hork have an incredible amount of intelligence that just looks different from our mm-hmm. views of intelligence. I just don't think that's how the books treat them. I think that from my perspective, looking at them as, as a species, Mm-hmm. KS, you're absolutely right. You know, they're adaptable. They have autonomy. They make their own decisions. They know a lot about their world. They are intelligent, but that's not how the books treat them. I think that the books are uneven. I think yes. that, that book 13 was great at this. I think book 23, to some extent, did a good job. Like, I feel like we got some good Jara moments. Like, mm-hmm. And I feel like Horkbridger Chronicles puts forth a lot of the ideas, and then really falls short on the form, like we said. So I think they're aiming for something, and they're not quite hitting it. But I like what they're aiming for, this mm-hmm. idea that, like, okay, here's this species where, in terms of the kind of intelligence we think of when we think first of intelligence, like, they really are have much less of it than we do. Mm-hmm. But they have these other abilities. They have... I actually interpreted the oral history as, like, almost something like... Magical. Magical. Or like, you know, like in The Giver where you can pass memories that it was actually like inherited or like passed on in a form greater than just, oh, I hear your words and now I repeat them. Like there's some cool stuff there. Like there's some really like, they seem to have a lot of wisdom. Like I like that they're aiming for, this is a different kind of sentient species and they are also sentient and we care about their freedom. And maybe we don't know quite how to deal with them as characters, Mm. but we at least are trying. Yeah. See, I think the, I think this, like, the fact that they are, they, like, count as people and should be equal, but then the world of the Animorphs kind of allows for, you know, well, like, we have super intelligent whales, and then we also have all these animals that are, like, clearly a tier down in terms of intelligence, mm-hmm. but, like, maybe they are people too, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, the more that I think about that, 
the harder it is for it all to kind of like hang together. Because sometimes they want to do one thing with it, and sometimes they want to do another thing with it. Like the Helmicrons are <laughs> stupider than the Horkbajir, right? They're less. <laughs> Despite their they're scientific not, brilliance. They're not people, right? They're basically all. They're like this weird little ant like hive mind. And they're all very, they present in this very ridiculous way. Mm. But also, like, if the Yerks engineered a quantum virus to kill all the Helmicrons, I would not care. <laughs> I really wouldn't. The text doesn't provide any kind of, like, thing about, like, obviously Helmicrons are people too, and, like... Yeah, they, I mean, I but, think they are people. But but they're clearly less, they're le- there's something about them that's less than the Horkbegir. Maybe yeah. I'm just projecting onto it I, for the sake of making this example, right? But, yeah. like... Yeah, I feel like it's a it's an unresolved question as to like I mean, why not then treat all of the animal species of Earth the way you want to treat the Harpagir? Where do you draw the line? I like, mean Cassie seems to think that you should. Right? Like is that what she's I I don't know. I feel sort like Sort of. Yeah. But like it bothers her, but then she's like, Okay, it's fine, I can morph dolphins, but like not Harpagir, you know, without their permission. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tobias is like in twenty three, I think he's like, I could use my Harpagir morph because Jarrah would be okay with it. I feel like there's also a phenomenon where, this is a little bit of a different topic, a lot of the species that the Animorphs meet who are allies, where they don't want to spend a lot of time complicating them, have, like, deep, ineffable wisdom. Hmm. Like, the Horkwajir are like this, and the Lyrans are like this, and... The Mercora. The, oh, the Mercora are like that, mm. too. The Chi. The Chi. The Andalites are not. The Andalites are much more complex. But I think it's like a, a narrative cheat almost. Like, we don't want them to be unlikable like the Helmicrons. We need them to, like, support our main characters. We need them to, yeah, to be, like, the vehicles of whatever the Animorphs need to have happen. And so, okay, we'll just make them... They aren't all noble savages, but they're all very, like, noble. In this way that almost results in, like, them not having needs or agendas of their own or, like, being willing to set that aside in order... I don't know. It is... It feels like it's tapping into a little bit of, like, imperialism, a little bit of, like, white saviorism. I mean, Animorphs aren't even all white, but, like, sort of the, like, these people who we can relate to entering these other cultures and, like, the other cultures are wise but need the Animorphs to take the action. Right. Mm-hmm. They're the only... The Elemist chosen heroes of the galaxy. Yeah. And that's that's something you actually you get in a lot of a lot of middle grade particularly where like it's only the small group of main characters who are really people. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Well yeah, I mean I guess it's just like it's also just like with the animals meeting the Horkbajir, they are textually presented as in like, oh, you're just meeting a bunch of children. Like they're mm-hmm. they're they're four year olds, right? Except for the one really smart one that comes along once a generation. Yeah. Right. So then, like, trying to translate that to this, like, post-colonialist idea mm-hmm. of, like, oh, the, it's my prejudice that makes me turn this group into an other, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, the science fiction is saying, like, actually, they're they different. They are other, because they're right? different species, But yeah. they're not, and so, like, the text doesn't go anywhere with that. I actually was, I was trying to think about this and, and ended up getting into a lot of mental contortions when I was thinking about another question someone asked, an anonymous person on Tumblr said, Regarding your discussion on the language differences between the Andalites and Horkbajir, it also makes no sense that Dak would speak with better grammar than the other Horkbajir. He had yeah, to have learned so the same language <laughs> that they speak. Like, what is he doing? Making up grammatical constructs just to sound different? So I was trying to think about that, and I kept getting tripped up in, okay, but everyone kind of has a language instinct. I'm like, no, they're actually a different species. And it's hard because 
so many times when you're talking about linguistic hierarchies within humans, it's a lot of it has to do with like a socioeconomic class, like dialects that are considered less polished or whatever, have just as much linguistic integrity as, and actually often more linguistic integrity than the more formal speech of the socioeconomically privileged, the sort of received grammar and all of that. And so I kept being like, okay, but that's probably true. And then I kept having to be like, no, 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 they are actually different species. They might have different mental abilities to process language. And it's hard because we do, we are tempted to like make everything an analogy to humans. And when you have actual science fiction, like you actual like different sentient species with differences between them because it's science fiction, then we're still tempted to make those analogies yeah. and they just become really like inaccurate and problematic right right, right. and that, that's why to me i was trying to say it's like that makes this kind of like a bad fantasy right like <laughs> it's like why would you want to imagine why would you want to imagine this world like it really the kinds of stories that like the story they want to tell is one about overcoming difference mm-hmm. right so like textually emphasizing the weird scientific differences between the people mm-hmm. can't help but undermine that yeah. Right. I don't know. I'm of two minds about it because I do think that there's benefit well, to actually imagining people who fundamentally and, are different. And, and the, the predator versus parasite thing that mm-hmm. happens in 19 is a really interesting mm, yeah. version of that. Yeah. It works out pretty well. Yeah. I think they, yeah, they attempted a lot with the difference between humans and Harpagir yeah. and they haven't quite managed to bridge that, that gap as well as I think they I just, yeah. wanted to. Honestly, just thinking about it, it's like the problem is the one out of every million Horkbajir is super intelligent. <laughs> it's like, it's like really terrible. Like, why not just have it be just like the intelligence is very, like has a normal amount of variance in it. And, mm. you know, you can imagine that once, well, every once in a while, there's someone who comes along. But like, that really just reduces all, the emphasis on that seer thing reduces all of the Horkbajir yeah. into like a flat yeah. thing. I did have thoughts on Dax language. It does seem like it would make sense if the other Harpagir seem to not have very complex, like, language structures in their brains. Like, they just don't have as much of a complex instinct for learning languages as most, you know, as humans do. And Dak maybe just has more sophistication there. And so he could, like, regularize the language in a way that, you know, like, human children will take linguistic patterns too far and, like make verb forms regular when they're not and that kind of thing. And he might be doing some of that. But also when we meet him, he is speaking in very simple constructions. And I think a lot of his linguistic complexity is gained from Aldrea. Yeah, I think that's true. And we sort of fast forward over that period where he learns calculus, right? So Yeah, I think that's also when he learns a lot of... Yeah. yeah. I mean, my headcanon about Rippagir Sears is they are probably the smartest people in the universe. Like, <laughs> the, the text seems to, doesn't really discount... What about the Elemis, Ted? Uh, the Elmist is an idiot. <laughs> Dak and especially Toby, much smarter than the Elmist. Okay, all right. Good to know. He's very smart, but he's nowhere near as smart as he thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> one one part of the science fiction that I want to celebrate about the Horkbajir Chronicles is I love everything about the Horkbajir homeworld. It's like the coolest place. I just want to spend tons of time there. And, like, the scale, it's, like, the immense scale of it is so amazing. Like, Mm -hmm. the, you know, it's, like, this barren planet with these huge crevices that are glowing blue from the bottom. As you head down into the crevices, it's, like, 50 miles until you hit that blue mist part, which is, like, that's a lot of miles. 
there's this like lush forest above the deep blue glow and it's like 50 miles deep, right? So the planet is huge, right? The deepest oceans on earth are like six miles deep. So like, yeah, like that's, that goes way down. And then when you go below the blue to Arnland, you can like see down into the, the planet's core, right? So everything about it is super cool. And I love the scene where they're like chadoos and jumping around. It's mm-hmm. like a really fun place to hang out before yeah. the war interferes and, and ruins everything. It reminded me of one of the best uh, Star Wars trilogies in the, the books, which is uh, part of it is set on the planet where Chewbacca is from. Kashyyyk. And wow. it's all these descriptions of these like huge trees that are so tall that you can never get to the bottom of them. The villages are kind of in one layer of the treetops. This is what it reminded me of. It's all these, you know, the smallest trees are 200 feet tall. The largest are 2,000 feet tall with trunks 100 feet in diameter. The valley walls are so steep that you could climb the tree and be level with the ground. I mean, it's just all, it's really, really evocative. I loved it. So we also learn a lot about Andalites in this book. We learn something about their their history. They used to be herd animals, and so they still have a lot of trouble sleeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're bad at sleep. We learn that Aldrea's alternate careers included cloud artist. I'm going to be a cloud artist. <laughs> Ted's eating a cookie and cannot talk about his desires <laughs> to be a cloud artist. <laughs> so we also learn some interesting things about thought speech. We learn that it includes universal symbols, which I think we might have referenced in the last episode, mm-hmm. because it's the thing where, like, oh, oh yeah, Andalites actually have universal language. Right, right. Yeah, so the universal language thing is another kind of, like, weird fantasy to have. <laughs> like, there's this yeah, universal language yeah. out there. But that answers your question about who counts as a person, right? It's like, if you have, like, the Z-space consciousness thing that allows you to morph, then you've got it, and otherwise you don't, right? That's like Whoa. the... Morphing as a test for uh, well, because we have all these things that suggest that like consciousness kind of transcends species. <laughs> There's like a lot yeah. of evidence for these soul-like constructs. So mm-hmm. either you have it or you don't, right? Like who knows if the andalite trees that talk have the ability to morph or like have souls and things. Do you think that the animorphs will give morphing technology to the free harpager? They should. Yeah, why not? Why haven't? Yeah, why doesn't that come up? You'd think Toby would would ask for it. Well, maybe she doesn't know that they have the box. Right. I mean, it doesn't even have to be morphing. It can just be, you know, if dolphins squeak at an andalite long enough, <laughs> will their translator But is language the definition for sentience? Okay. Not necessarily. It could be. I have a question for our listeners, which is, I, this may be answered in the text later. It hasn't been that many books since the box was found. Is Jake intentionally withholding the existence of the morphing cube from Toby? Ooh. As of... Books 23, 24. Jake has gotten pretty subtle, Also, Rachel says. be super embarrassing to have to tell anyone about the David thing. Oh, I mean, you could just say that we have a box without telling about the David thing. Exactly, but... Yeah, yeah but that's true. They probably don't want to think about it. They definitely don't want to bump into any Lyrans anytime soon. No comment, right? They're going to be back eventually. I'm just going <laughs> to keep guessing that. But yeah, Andalite thought speech, not only does it have universal symbols, we learn something very interesting and strange about it because Aldrea morphs into Alarin in order to sneak into the lab where they're building the quantum virus. And she has to sign in like at the, I don't know, the lock or whatever, like with a with a thought speech, like recognition thing. She has to thought speak at it. She's in Alarin's body. 
Now, I would have assumed that when she's thought-speaking, she would sound like herself and not like Alarin. But, in fact, she thought-speaks at the computer, and it's like, thought-speech recognized. Thanks, Alarin. And so, apparently, if you morph a thought-speech-capable creature, not only can you thought-speak as yourself, like using your brain in Z-space or whatever, you can also thought-speak using the brain of the creature you've morphed. Yeah, it's like vocal cords. Yeah. Which is really weird, especially because it doesn't seem like you get the entire brain of a sentient creature. You just right. kind of get some instincts. Yeah, um, so interesting. But you get enough to to use thought speech. Also, the like thought speech security industry on the Endlight Homeworld is just gonna like go straight down the tubes oh now that gosh. morphing technology has been invented. Right? Like, so true. It was secure mm-hmm. for thousands of years, and now no longer. They're gonna have to develop more like. Subtle thought speak security. They should get finestra on that. Yeah. Seems like a good guy to work with. Or he was. <laughs> this isn't an Andalite fact that we learned, but some Yurk facts that we learned is that when Esplin has not yet uh, earned themselves a host, they are able to use a computer to look at information about Andalites. So there's yeah. the Yurks can give themselves artificial vision, yeah. right? Which, to me, invites the question of why haven't the Yerks just built themselves robot hosts? Seriously. Right? Like, yep. surely there must exist the technological capability somewhere in the universe yeah. to build robots for Yerks. You know who could do it? The she. Yeah. The she could do it. Yeah, exactly. So, yep. like, either... I don't know. I mean, I guess the Yerks are just, like, so evil that they prefer to infest people than to build robots for themselves. It's like how they made the Dracon beams like intentionally painful because they're just evil. Right. Yep. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's not really vision and it's just, you know. But still, build a robot body. Come on, guys. So speaking of Yerks, we talked in our cut footage, we talked about how the Yerks seem to have had surprisingly little technological development before the Andalites got there. At least that's like the Andalites' perspective is that they didn't have any of this technology or, you know, culture or anything. They had their own language to, like, use from slug to slug, but they didn't have a language that they could use in their dead bodies, mm. uh, which is really weird that they didn't develop that. And I was sort of asking, like, why are the Yerks, like, why do they have such complex intelligence? They don't need it for tools. They can't use tools. Like, it seems odd that they evolved such intense mental capacity. And we also, on that subject, posited the possibility of a Yerkseer. What would a Yerkseer be, Ted? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I completely forgot about this. <laughs> right, so there's like, the, the parallels in this are like, the Yerks and the Horkbajir were meant to be together because, mm-hmm. right, the, the Horkbajir have all the OTP. brawn and the Yerks have all the brains, right? So it's not really my OTP. Dak and Toby... Get both, right? So yeah. there must be Yerkseers that are basically muscle slugs. Like, they, they're they just <laughs> much bigger and stronger than every other Yerk in the pool. Maybe all of the Yerkseers just, like, <laughs> crawled out of the pool and went somewhere else. <laughs> they just, like, they had their, their thumbs and they just, like, inched across the uh, the land. Yeah. So Sophie Katz, Sophie A. Katz, sorry, left a uh, a comment on Twitter. It's implied slash stated that the Yerks had some kind of culture on their homeworld that Fisser Three et al. are now cut off from and don't know. What do you think that culture was like? What kinds of traditions, legend, art even? What are they missing? I love that this is a dark spot in the 
the lore of the Animorphs so far. Yeah. Like, it's just like Actor, who's created the Evil York Empire, and the Yorks that get left behind could be pretty chill. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean... Because, like, they're definitely... The other Yerks, like, tell Visser 3 about, like, the size and spaciousness of the pools and their scents and their temperatures and their traditions. And we don't really hear anything about what that means. Like, what does that mean, their traditions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if they do sort of, like, like weird sensory experiences, right? Like... Mm. Do they have dance that involves, like, water currents or, like... Mm. Do they have music? Because they make noise. They, like, speak to each other through, like, some sort of sonar type. I guess I'm imagining more like it's almost like developing or excreting drugs that alter your perceptions in different ways, right? So they're, they're constantly, like, messing with their sense of smell and touch in very nuanced ways. They must have, like, I mean, a big part of why humans have such complex brains is to process social situations. So Yerkes... Must have complex, like, social networks. But they also don't seem to need each other for survival because they just absorb candrona rays. They don't, like, need to get food. Right, and candrona rays are just, it's just sunlight, yerk. Yeah, yerk. yeah, it's just the yerk homeworld home sun. They absorb Perfect. it just by hanging out in the pool. And the the yerk military hierarchy is very strict and there are all these ranks and things. Mm-hmm. But that could be something that's carried over. Like, the kind of idea of a pecking order or a social structure, so that maybe they are constantly kind of... Yeah, like, the Council of Thirteen predates the war. It seems like the Visser and Subvisser ranks don't. Right. So, like, struggling for status, mm-hmm. you know, access to what the better they... parts of the pool. The better... Okay, because, yeah, I was like, what do they want the status for? Is it Yeah, the deep end. <laughs> it's just some parts of the pool are lifeguarded, and they're much, much more desirable. The hot tub. The hot tub. They were really into the temperature of the pool. I also wonder, I mean, the way that we think of them reproducing is kind of like exponential. Like every two mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. you pair off in threes and split off into like hundreds or dozens yeah. at least, right? So like either the, the oceans of the Yerk homeworld are limitless. Yerks kill each other off quite frequently, mm-hmm. you know, normally. Yeah. Or maybe not all of them reproduce. And so maybe there's, my there's some kind of like, maybe that's part of the social dynamics is maybe it's a uh, great honor to be chosen to be one of the three. Probably not. It's probably, it probably sucks. I mean, you, you die, right? But, it, or it's, you get to then split oh, you yourself off, you, you split yeah. yourself off into yeah. a thousand pieces or whatever. Hmm. You're create like maybe three people are chosen to be the next generation. Yeah. And so each generation is one splitting of yours. That'd be interesting. You know, I was thinking more that it's like some Yerks feel the biological imperative. I was thinking, I think, more of like the insect hive type thing where like most of them don't reproduce, but some yeah. are the type of like whatever the species is that reproduces. Mm-hmm. So I was, yeah, I was kind of thinking most Yerks don't have sort of a mating drive, but then sometimes it hits some of them and they join up three of them and split off into tons of grubs. Hmm. Yeah. So like, what is Sulpnayar, the Sulpnayar pool? Is it a place name? Is it the name? Is it somehow the name of the three Yerks that created the pool? Oh, maybe originally. Although that's only two names. But yeah, maybe they were merged. Well, yeah, so I don't know. Maybe pool is the third name. <laughs> it's a false cognate. Like, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, a rip. A and rip. also the froless maneuver. Maneuver, maneuver. maneuver yeah. <laughs> I had a couple more things to say. What are they? 
Ooh, I want Ted to read Gallard. Did I do that last time? No, I said that you should, but then we forgot. Can you give me some Gallard? I'll find some Gallard for you. I'm searching three R's. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Okay, so this is Eslin's POV. The first time. The first time he's in a Ged host. No, in a Horkbajir host. In a Horkbajir host. And Actor is there as a Ged saying, Well, Esplin 9466, what do you think? (laughs) It took a moment for me to make sense of the sentence. (laughs) Makes sense. I asked what you think. You study the Randallites. Can this body be used to fight the Andalites? It was Galar. <laughs> the new language we had learned from the Ongakic hosts. That was so much better than I even expected. I like how the Geds seem to be like some kind of like mob bosses. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think. It's very... Yeah, I liked it. it That's great. Very Marlon Brando. <laughs> yes, yes. Thanks, Ted. Um, so the other, I also, I mean, you guys know how I feel about Jake's tallness. It's very important. <laughs> Not but tall enough. <laughs> Peaser brought up the question of Aldrea's size and Andalite size in general, because as they point out, Dad can carry Aldrea with, in one arm. With some effort. <laughs> Just because of your gesture. I was like, in one hand? Oh no, she's so small. She got sucked. <laughs> <laughs> little, little Andalite. My little Andalite. Esplanade 9466 would definitely play with my little Andalite dolls. Oh my god. He would, it would be creepy. Uh, so yeah, so seven feet tall is large, but not so large. Uh, they also point out that Lauren didn't have to climb or struggle to get on Elfinger's back, and that her eyes were then level with his stock eyes. And the books do mention that female Andalites are smaller than males, and also that Elfinger wasn't fully grown. But the possibility that, like, you know, we've been thinking of, at least I've been thinking of Axis, like, kind of horse-sized he might be considerably smaller than that. That's so cute! <laughs> you know, right? I love it. So, are you trying to tell me that Axe is just little Sebastian with a head? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. He's yes. five foot two, also. <laughs> the perfect height. Everyone in the series is five foot two, except for Rachel, who is like incredibly Wait, tall, and Cassie, who's like mean, four one. Does this mean that like I'm probably taller than Alaron? Like, <gasps> that's maybe. upsetting. I mean, it's just a theory. And we do know that male Andalites, like full-grown male Andalites, are taller than the examples we've seen That's so true. far. Alaric has to be pretty small. <laughs> I mean, we saw <laughs> the image on the cover of Visser. Right. He didn't. Alaric's got to be like. He didn't look that small. The the rock of the Andalites. <laughs> <laughs> but do we think that Visser Three is happy with that? Because he seemed to uh, to really admire the the delicate beauty. That might was, have reversed that size, was Joe Bob Finestre. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Okay, uh, I did want to mention the one '90s reference we had. Tobias is visiting the Horkbajir. He says, "What stories do you tell?" I asked, cringing a little at the possibilities. I felt like I was asking Great Grandma to tell me about her youth. You know, like the result wasn't exactly going to be Party of Five, the pinnacle <laughs> of entertaining media. It's <laughs> amazing. I think that's all we got for '90s references. I think so too. I. I... Want to read 
to the two of you and to our audience, maybe, <laughs> um, a Goodreads review of this book that was oh, written man. a few years ago. I'm excited. Ooh. It's written by a 15-year-old who has just read Hork-Bajir Chronicles for the first time Aww. on his 15th birthday. Aww. And the review is a letter to his nine-year-old self. It is the cutest thing I've ever read in my life. And I just want to read you parts of it. I'm going to read the whole thing. But Dear nine-year-old Mike, Hi, me from when I was nine. How you doing? Actually, don't tell me. I can probably guess. Uh, you're probably relatively fine. You'd be in fourth grade and not much happened this year. So you're <laughs> fine. Anyway, right now you're into a series called Animorphs. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Right now you hold the belief that anyone around you could be a controller. Well, I'm here to reassure you that this belief will never go away. <laughs> uh, you'll always have it, but anyway, it's a very cool war story full of action. And whether you realize it or not, you're making meaningful connections to the characters. Well, I'm writing this for my 15th birthday, and today I just finished reading the Hork-Bajir Chronicles for the first time. You've probably heard of it. You might be disappointed that you won't get to read it as a nine-year-old, but don't be. The wait will be long, but when you do get to read it, you're going to appreciate it on a much deeper level than any than nine-year-old you ever could. You'd enjoy it now, but you wouldn't see it for everything it is, so I'm trying to give you as good an explanation as possible as to why it's so good. So he talks about the how hard it is to write aliens, about the culture. Uh, Applegate does a really great job of making them people. And uh, my point is that everything is done with complexity. There are no shortcuts taken here. But you, nine-year-old Mike, won't understand that. You'll have to wait six years before you'll appreciate it the way I do, which brings me to the point of this letter. Don't be afraid to grow up. Aww. 15-year-old talking to his nine-year-old self. <laughs> Don't be afraid to grow up. I know it's scary, but trust me, it's already worth it. Middle school is going to suck, but high school is, is going to be like 10 times better. That's how life will be. There'll be ups and downs, but overall, I think it'll get better, not worse, and you won't lose who you are now. I mean, I'm still talking about how amazing Animorphs is, <laughs> even though I started reading the series when I was you. And now I have a much deeper understanding of why it's so amazing and worth loving. And ultimately, I wouldn't trade that for being back in elementary school. God, no. So don't be afraid of time. It's going to pass whether you want it to or not. So the only way you'll be happy is if you decide you want it to. Yours, 15-year-old Mike. Oh. It is so sweet. Also, There's that so kid, much wisdom there. totally an Animorphs kid. Yeah. Okay, but why did it take six years for him to read the Archer Chronicles? I want that story. He read it in 2014. Uh-huh. Time um, Matrix. But somehow, <laughs> yeah, I think it must be a Time Matrix thing. Maybe it just wasn't available at his library. Sorry, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. do you think that he's now... Listening to Animorphs podcasts. I hope so, Mike. I if you're so out there, can you friend Mike on Goodreads? Mike yeah, can you like comment. respond to his review? Thank you. I will. That's so wonderful. He's also such a Tobias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. No one. No one else in this series would do that. Oh, that's so sweet. Maybe the Elemist will bring his letter back in time and give it to his nine-year-old self so that he can read it. Oh <laughs> Stupid Elemist. So speaking of, so great. We had you identify the Chronicles book last time. But your prediction was lost to time. But your prediction was lost to time. So you have a chance to do it all over again, whether you yeah. remember it or not. Oh, damn. It's okay. You don't have to make the whole same prediction. No one will know. Good. We'll I know. Remember it all, we might sad. tell people. Do you want to look at the cover again to jog your memory? Oh, you definitely should. Good point. Also because it's an amazing like He's gorgeous. <laughs> so many abs. Abs for days. Should we get like a huge poster of the cover of that book and like put it up on this door when we record? Yes. Yes. As inspiration. <laughs> Yes. Okay. 
Let's oh, do it. Oh, yes. Oh, I do remember this. Because his <laughs> hooves are the size of his head. <laughs> and he's got too many rib cages. I understand that the horse and the human both need ribs, but it's, yeah, it just yeah. means but that he's great. Got a remember, back. he also comes up to your shoulders. <laughs> Maybe the stock eyes, like, reach your ears or something. That's both very cute and really weird. <laughs> Even though I'm the one who brought this up, I'm going to resist that truth. I'm going to be a large andalighter. Large with no torsos. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm in favor of the torsos. Okay, so it's called Visser, which each of the Chronicles books that we've read so far have been about characters from the kind of start of the war. Right, they're mm-hmm. all go back in time and see what happens. So it's mm-hmm. Elvengora and Alarin with the Hork Bajir homeworld. So I think this is gonna be about I I don't think it's gonna be about Visser 3, I think it's gonna be about Visser 1. Whoa. That's my prediction because Nice I, pivot. Very different from your original. Yeah, my original yeah. I'm, I'm rethinking it. Okay. Because okay. we haven't heard from her in a while. Uh-huh. Because she's dead. Oh. Because she's dead. <laughs> Except she's not dead. <laughs> and I think it's time for them to come back. And so I that's I think I think it's gonna be Mr. One. This is a great prediction, however, why is Mr. Three on the cover? How do we know it's Mr. Three? Oh, because it's Visser 3 and it's him going around the world. That was my work. prediction yeah, you, last time. Yeah. My prediction was it's Visser 3 going around and finding all the alien Zeus and that's I, I'm back to that. Doesn't I, make any sense for me. I think you also had a thing about how it was going to be about the invasion of Earth? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's Visser 3, he's doing shit. I don't know. Maybe we learn more about the Yerk uh, traditions and culture and stuff. Whoa. Um, it's about the first Visser. So Visser 1 Ah. ah, well, the first Visser is, you know, from 1967, so they haven't been around that long. It's uh, true. Yeah, they true. didn't have Vissers before the war. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, that sounds good. We'll have to wait a while. We have to wait, like, ten books to find that out, but I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, I can't oh, wait. That's right. When is it? Like, 35, 36? Yeah. It's around there. We got some time, is what we're saying. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. But we'll see you next time. Yeah. Very exciting. Morphology out. If you want to find us, we are at Animorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the books on our website. Animorphologyology in. (laughs) All right. How did we do this week? (laughs) Yeah, we secretly record all the Animorphologyology episodes as we do the Animorphology episodes and then just release them much later. I only said problematic twice.